Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mason Jar on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and in just a few minutes, we'll be bringing you an interview that Cindy Rollins and I conducted with a special guest. But first, I want to take care of a little bit of business. If you've been listening to the Mason Jar for a while, you know by now, I would think, that we have a special Mason Jar feed on iTunes or Stitcher. So if you only listen to the Mason Jar and you don't listen to Close Freeze and the other shows on our network, we wanted to make it easier for you to get the content that you like as quickly and easily as possible. So all you have to do is head over to iTunes or Stitcher and whatever app or device that you're using and search the Mason Jar podcast and it should pop up and you can hit that subscribe button and then you can be subscribed to just that show instead of the whole Cersei Podcast Network and that makes it a little bit easier for you to access that content. You don't have to weed through all the other shows. Now, of course, we would love it if you would listen to the other shows. Uh, we love uh, when people listen to multiple shows and they can reference both of them and they go back and forth and when we have conversations about both at the same time. That's always really fun. Um, but if you want to just access the Mason Jar, that's how you can do it. Now, we're also going to be at a number of homeschool conventions and conferences this year. Uh, we will be at all the GHC conferences, the Great Homeschool Conventions conferences, as well as a number of others. If you'd like to learn more about where you can find us, uh, and in most cases, or at least in some cases, Cindy, you can head over to our website at sourceinstitute.org, click the events uh, button there, and you can see where we're going to be. And we'll keep that updated as best as we can as new conferences uh, get added. And then one last thing. Uh, if you would, head over to iTunes or Stitcher or, again, wherever you get podcasts. And please leave us a review if you would. If you've been listening for a while but haven't done that, we would really appreciate it. It helps with the iTunes and Stitcher algorithms. It helps get more listeners. And, uh, and the more listeners we have, the more shows we can do. Um, pretty simple equation, but the al algorithm is a little weird. So if you go over there and you'd leave us a star review and then any kind of comment that you have, we would certainly be grateful for that. Now let's get you right over to our guest. And that guest this month on the Mason Jar interview episode is Mr. Andrew Pudua. And we wanted to talk to him about the role that dads can play in the homeschool. So while this episode is not strictly speaking uh, just Charlotte Mason content, it does touch on a lot of the Charlotte Mason ideas, uh, but it really focuses on the role that dads can play. So if you want to uh, have your husband's, you know, listen with you, whether you're in the car or doing the dishes, or maybe he just has his own uh, podcast habits and you can, you know, ask him to subscribe and listen to this one, you know, go ahead and do that. Um, but Andrew Pudawa, if you don't already know, is the director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing and a father of seven. So it makes sense to talk to him about what role dads can play in their kids' education. Uh, he travels uh, speaking around the world and he addresses issues related to teaching, writing, thinking, spelling, and music with clarity, insight, practical experience. And, of course, if you've ever heard Andrew, you know that there's humor involved as well. His seminars for parents, students, and teachers have helped transform many a reluctant writer and have equipped educators with powerful tools to dramatically improve student skills. He's been a good friend of ours. We're really grateful to, uh, to have his friendship and support. And if you've been to a Cersei conference before in the last few years, it's a good chance you've heard him speaking. Uh, and he will be once again speaking this next summer in Austin, Texas at our national conference. He is a graduate of the Talent Education Institute in Japan and holds a certificate of child brain development from the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential in Philadelphia. And he claims that his best endorsement is from a young Alaskan boy who called him the funny man with the wonderful words. He and his wife, Robin, have homeschooled their seven children and are now proud grandparents of eight, and they make their home in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where IEW is based. 
And so without further ado, I'm going to kick it over to my interview with, along with Cindy of Andrew Pudua, founder and author and director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing. Enjoy. Well, welcome to the Mason Jar, Mr. Pudua. Glad to, glad to have you here. Good to be with you. So we are here to talk about the role that dads can play in uh, home education. Um, and I suppose that this goes beyond, you know, students who are homeschooled in the sense that we traditionally think of, because um, it can also ap- apply to children who go to maybe a more traditional school setting, but whose dads also need to be involved in, in, in their additional schooling, so to speak. But um, my my first question for you is, what what has your experience been with you know, being involved in your family's homeschool and, and how, how has that evolved over time? Yes, well, we've been homeschooling, uh, I guess you'd say, depending on when you start, you know, do you say you start at three years old or do you start at birth or do you start in kindergarten age five or six or whatever, but about uh, 23, 24 years. And yes, uh, you know, it has changed. Um, certainly the role of dad's in all families is critical. Um, one thing uh, I came across, interesting statistic, uh, you know, homeschoolers generally score better than their private uh, public school peers on standardized tests. Uh, that's pretty well accepted and documented in Brian Ray at the National Home Education Research and all that. But if you compare the scores of kids who live at home with two parents and go to public schools, their scores are equal to the average of the homeschooler score. So the critical element, more than you know the curriculum or the methodology or the homeschooling atmosphere or the community or whatever, seems to be having two parents involved. So uh, yes, I... Uh, you know, find that the role changes uh, over time, sometimes from year to year. Uh, I have the uh, either the advantage or the curse of having been self-employed for my whole adult life. The upside is that you can write your own schedule, you're more flexible, you can work from home a lot of the time. Uh, the downside is you feel like you're always at work. You know, you you always have things that need to be done. It's hard to to separate work and and regular life. And I I kind of long wished for some kind of job like a greeter at Walmart, where I could just go there and smile at people and and leave and be done with work for the for the day. So uh, there is the double-edged sword there, and I I think a lot of families who have uh, home business or self-employed dad uh, can experience that. Yeah, the, uh, actually, that's really, really fascinating that you say that because for for the longest time, my husband felt guilty that he went out to work every day, and there he had a, there was really a lot of internal pressure in the homeschooling movement for him to come home and get a job at home, and and he really regrets now the years that he wasted fretting over that problem like instead of just doing what god had set him to do and and being involved at home he he just was constantly pursuing uh trying trying to start some random business 
So um, anyway, that's just an aside. Sure. And, you know, while I, I support family businesses 100%, I teach entrepreneurship, I I really encourage that. I do see there is there is a dark side to, you know, working from home means you're always at work. Right. Uh, but for, uh, you know, for the homeschooling family, the flexibility is very nice. Uh, there's always phases. And, of course, you've, you've had more children than, than my wife has had, uh, so you know it better than I do. But, you know, when that new baby comes and for those first couple months or sometimes the first couple years, everything's different and the demands on mom are different. The way to organize the homeschooling activities with the the kids, uh, you know, it, it's, it seems like it's in constant flux. Yes, <laughs> it definitely seems like that. And and that that's one area. That's one area where I feel that dads can try to give some consistency, um, helping to maintain schedules, helping to keep kids accountable, helping uh, mom do what she would do if she weren't nursing at that time, or what she would do if she could, and uh, that aiming for helping mom in that area of being consistent. I know it's not possible to be perfectly consistent, but striving toward the ideal of greater consistency. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think, I mean, I, I, to me that sounds wonderful, you know, for, for there to be two parents, both of them working towards the same goal. Maybe the mom ends up with the load of the homeschool, but the dad is also there um, he could, he can, you know, especially in a crisis. And I mean, I, we've had plumbing crises and uh, crises, I guess is the word. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, just things that, uh, that, that when everything falls apart to have an extra hand is very, very nice. So I was just talking to someone who we work with here. Um, and she was describing how when she was younger and she was homeschooling, her mom was she described that as her mom was the teacher and her dad was the headmaster. And so she kind of said that, you know, the, her mom would do most of the day-to-day teaching, but her dad was the one who, you know, you mentioned schedules, Mr. Pudawai, and that he would make sure that they were on schedule or that he would dole out discipline as necessary. Is Were you in that kind of role or did that vary from child to child or was it more administrative or are you, were you pretty hands-on as a teacher given your, you know, your expertise is in teaching? Well, that that has a different set of questions and potential problems. Because I was a teacher, because I'm in education, um, you know, I would I would wanted to be more involved in the homeschooling than say if I were you know an engineer who could go off and do engineering and come home. Uh, and but but then you also have that problem of the cobbler's kids have no no shoes. Uh, he's too busy making shoes for everybody else. Um, I was teaching music full time for 15 years and only one of my children really had any significant period of uh, playing the, the musical instrument uh, regularly. Uh, and, you know, I look on, I look back on that and feel, oh, you know, I failed in that way. We failed. I, and I know why it happened. I'm running around encouraging everyone to get their kids to play musical instruments. It makes you smarter. It's good for the soul. It's good for the brain. And then while I'm gone doing that, my wife is not practicing with my own children because I'm supposedly the expert. 
So there, there was that side of it as well. Um, but uh, to get back on a more positive note, what you know were the things that I did do that helped to build consistency and helped mom be organized. Now, some moms are you know naturally well organized. They make schedules and checklists ahead of time, and they they refer to them and keep on them. We're a little bit more uh, kind of a fly by the seat of the pants uh, approach. Um, if something came up, oh, let's go do that. Um, you know, oh, what should we do next? Uh, kind of not a lot of really um, comprehensive planning. That wasn't my wife's real style. But one thing we did consistently for many years, and she has told me again and again how grateful she is, and that was just, you know, without exception, every week have a family meeting. Mm. And I got to be the boss and I call the meeting and I have an agenda and I'm I'm more organized in that way, you know, being in business and things. So I would print the agenda for the meeting and hand it out to everybody. And Sounds like my know. dad. <laughs> Does he do that too? Yeah. Yeah, he did. And uh, that gave everyone a chance to, you know, voice the things they're happy or excited about, to voice their complaints in a, in a neutral environment. Um, it gave me an opportunity to formally reinforce decisions that mom had made. Because uh, you know how kids will say, well, you know, mom said one thing, dad said another. So I guess I can do whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that unity. And then we'd go over the schedule for the week and be sure that everyone had a printed schedule and knew, you know, which days is drama and which day is dad going away and which day is mom got to take so-and-so to the dentist and 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 with that framework i will say that you know that was something i could do which my wife could not have done without me and it lent the best it lent the best help to the family and i think that that is worth doing even if you have kids in a school or have kids in a uh, two or three day a week hybrid program. I think every family benefits from that formal family meeting type of approach. And how long do you think that uh, meeting took generally? Well, um, it would vary because sometimes there'd be, you know, some heated discussion about something that somebody did that someone else didn't like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would try to open with uh, a devotion of some sort. Um, go through the agenda. I would say on the average, thirty to forty-five minutes. Yeah, so that's something a dad could do who who wasn't at home full time, but you know, Friday after Friday night or or sometime. Yeah, because of our schedule, we pretty much always did it uh, Sunday night. Mm, that's um, a good time. Yeah, because I was th- that was the the day I was almost never away uh, for travel. It was a day where there wasn't going to be some urgent thing that you had to do. Um, you've had theoretically a day of rest, so people are in a good <laughs> mood. And uh, but I think it could be done any any day of the week. But for us, that that Sunday night worked quite well. And and the kids are motivated to kind of do that and get done with it because of the other thing I would mention that I think is something dads can do consistently. And is one of the best things that can be contributed without much planning, without much uh, work ahead of time. You know, to teach a class, 
you do have prep work. You've got to organize. You've got to get books together. You've got to think it through. You've got to figure out, okay, how am I going to teach this? Uh, and that takes time. But mm-hmm. what I have been really strongly encouraging dads, you know, all over the country, anytime I meet a group of parents, read out loud every night that you're home to your kids. It is the greatest blessing for the family, and it, in a way, it's one of the most important educational things you can do, especially in terms of the language development and the writing aptitude that comes out of having been read to a lot. Amen. Amen. <laughs> did, did you have a, a certain amount of time that you tried to read a night? Like, was there a specific goal you were always trying to do? Was it a chapter or 30 minutes or, or something like that? Or did it just vary? It would vary because of, you know, dinner would not always be at the same time, you know, if someone was away and we were late and if there was something that needed to be done. But but I did make I did make it a priority and I set down the law. So I basically said any day that I am home and there's no crisis happening, <laughs> I am going to read. And every kid in the house is going to be in the room while I'm reading. No exceptions. Well, now, can I back up? So so this this was something in our family that became really confusing as we got um, teenagers and they got jobs. And, and our kids really had to get jobs. They needed to get jobs if they wanted to actually have any money to do anything. And um, so... It was confusing for us as a family to keep reading aloud when maybe somebody was at work or somebody was not at work. And eventually, I think we just just plowed through anyway on on some of that evening reading and just didn't worry about who was there and who wasn't. But did you come up against that as your children got older? Well, um, I had the great uh, benefit of having my own company and being able to employ my own children meaningfully, (laughs) uh, which not everybody does. And so I can see that I've, you know, I've talked to families, sometimes sports practices will happen in the evening. Uh, You know, we had periods of uh, where we did a lot of musical theater. And so you'd have a, a whole week of rehearsals, basically, you know, afternoon and all evening. Uh, and that would derail the thing. But in terms of, you know, do you not read the next chapter because so-and-so is going to miss it? I don't think you can do that or else, you know, you'd start to never never get the books finished. Right. That's what we came up with. Yeah, that was our but, problem. You know, they can they can read on their own or, or you know, they, they miss a chapter. It's like, you know, you have to go to the bathroom during a movie. You come back and you figure it out. <laughs> and often your younger kids, you're trying to hit some books that maybe they missed because you'd read them so long ago that you know, they weren't even born. Sure, sure. Now, One how my... many children do you have? Well, we we have seven. Um, the the youngest is the only one at home. She's 17 now, or very close to 17 now. I'm mentally preparing for 17. <laughs> we have uh, eight grandchildren with one more on the way, so I guess technically now nine. And uh, that's that's a real joy to have uh, grandchildren nearby. Oh, that is. But uh, the seven children were pretty evenly spaced about three years apart. So they all kind of, you know, came in a in a rhythm, so to speak. <laughs> and um, w- one of the one of the things that uh, I I discovered in the process of reading to everyone is that. 
it doesn't really matter whether they look attentive or not. Mm, you know, amen. They, they just have to be in the room, and they can be doing math or playing Legos or drawing pictures. You know, keep their hands and eyes busy. Some sometimes they actually listen better when they're not trying to, you know, look at you and concentrate. Uh, so I learned early on to not judge attentiveness by behavior. I really appreciate you saying that because I do think people give up a lot um, because they feel like the child isn't listening and they have no idea really how much the child is taking in. And sometimes even more so when maybe they're doing somersaults or something. <laughs> right, right. Then the, the other thing, I I kind of figured this out on my own, but I was afraid to articulate it. However, it was, David, when your dad was visiting me one time, uh, Andrew Kern, he, he, we were having a conversation about poetry, and he said, understanding is highly overrated. <laughs> and I thought, yes, that is so true. Because, you know, we talk to three-year-olds, we don't worry whether they understand everything we say to them or not. Hmm. We assume they'll get what they can, and, and they're growing up. The same thing actually is true for kids of all ages. It's just when they hit, you know, 11, 12, 13, we start to worry, oh, no, did did they understand that? Uh, and that's one thing I think it's so valuable to read the classics uh, because you read Shakespeare, you read Homer, and you think, I don't understand that. <laughs> and then you realize, I don't have to understand it to get value out of having read it. And that leaves your that that leaves that you know that hanging whatever you want to call it that causes your brain to function long after you've left Shakespeare behind. You're still somehow your mind is still working on all those things you didn't understand and trying to make sense out of it. And then you're making connections that you might not have made if you just understood everything completely the first time. So I, I think that's I think I, I'm I'm really happy you said that. Well, so, and I think we see the dumbing down of the curriculum in schools, public schools, the Common Core, this saying, you know, let's read informational te texts so that we can be sure everybody understands everything. You know, we're we're going to be losing, as a society, exactly what you were just articulating, which is the, you know, if I can rephrase it, the, the soul level, the absorption, the you know, the soaking in the the beauty of the thing without, as as Andrew Kernigan would say, killing the puppy. You know, you don't have to dissect it to gain value from experiencing it. So would you would you say that the the really or one of the really great values then about that habit and about dad being involved in that habit is is the cultivation of the habit itself. Some maybe more so than the comprehension that uh, absolutely dad's and dad's helping cultivate the habits of the home absolutely and you know it is the dad who who ultimately has to be responsible for the culture of the home because if you know if a mom wants to set up some kind of system or policy or principles and dad doesn't agree with it or go along with it it's just not going to really fly it's not going to last you won't get the benefits so if you want to change your culture from one of electronic entertainment after dinner before bed to the family hearth reading reciting poems and talking that simply cannot be done i don't believe successfully for any length of time without dad being the one to say this is the way it's going to be 
Okay, so I have a question then about that. So, you know, a lot of the the families who are listening probably have dads who are not necessarily in your situation where they're working from home. So how can the dad who is busy, who's working outside of the home, who maybe even is traveling a lot, how can that dad um, be involved in cultivating that culture? Are there, and, I, and I know that that's – are there any tips you can – specific tips you can give? I mean, you mentioned – you know, focusing on the hearth and memorizing poetry together and and reading aloud, but are there other things that that the busy dad can help do? You know, I don't know if you have any specifics. Well, um, I wouldn't say that this would work in every situation, but there were times where, you know, there was one of the children that was really the biggest challenge of the moment, so to speak, Mm -hmm. Uh, usually around 12 or 13. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And so on a couple occasions, I basically said to this child, you know, I'm going to be responsible for you and you're going to report to me every day. Now, I travel a lot. I travel 100 to 150 days a year and have done so for the last decade. So that's Mm -hmm. tough. So with one of the one of the girls, I, I actually had a form that she had to fill out every day about what she did with every 15-minute block of her time, um, a list of the things she had accomplished, two paragraphs summarizing things that she had studied or read, and I put a fax machine in her room, and I said, you have to fax this this report and these this summary, you have to fax this to me every day, whether I'm home or not home. This faxes to me. It goes into my computer. And if you have a problem with your schedule, with your work, with what's expected of you, you come to me first. In fact, I'll be quite honest. I don't know who's ever going to listen to this podcast. I won't say her by name. She'd laugh at it now. Of course, she's a adult with two kids herself. But it was so bad. I actually said, you are not allowed to talk to your mother until noon. And hmm. if you have a problem... You call me because you're just going to drive her absolutely crazy if you keep on doing the way you're doing. <laughs> so, so you know Did that was for yeah. Actually, it did. In fact, that was that was a, a a very transformative time in her life. We probably kept it up for the better part of a year, and uh, it really moved her into being more of an independent scholar. Uh, she had a certain degree of freedom to study what she was interested in more than if she was being micromanaged. I think that's what happens a lot of kids at 12, 13. They just stop wanting to be micromanaged. Hmm. They want to grow up. They want to have real honest-to-God responsibility. And yet we look at them and say, you don't look smart enough to be responsible for yourself. (laughs) So you weren't trying to be controlling so that, you know, in the sense that you wanted to micromanage, you were trying to unlock her ability to be free, is what you're saying. Exactly, exactly. But but there needed to be the accountability. Otherwise, so you gave her freedom and accountability at the same time. So it wasn't just, I'm I'm giving you yeah. this, this to do, and you better do every bit of it. It was, here. prove to me that you're learning, and, um, you know, I'll give, yeah. uh, you know, each day. Yeah, basically it was a shift from, um, you know, content to time use. So rather than structuring the content, here's your checklist of stuff to get done. 
you know, because any kid can learn how to run through a checklist of stuff and get it all done with a minimum of effort in a minimum of amount of time. That's not teaching anything really good or valuable. Instead, it was your responsibility is to study four hours a day. Show me how you use those four hours, and here's a bunch of things you can do during those four hours. Hmm. So it was that that shift from content to uh, understanding time, and so I've I've had to step in, you know, on occasion, and essentially remove the problem child from the mother's life for a time, and I, you know, I was able to do that. I, I would think most most dads could somehow make it work, probably, but it is, you know, a little bit scary too, because oh no, what if they don't, you know, do what if they don't finish all the workbooks by the end of the year? Yeah. I guess nowadays it might be even easier because she wouldn't, the child wouldn't have to fax anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just send out a text every half hour. Yeah. yeah. The, um, the other thing that I was able to do, and, and I think a lot of dads would be able to do this if they contemplate what's their area of interest or talent or experience and how the could they, area or the, the dad's area, and how could they start a class and teach that to their own children. Hmm. Um, I discovered that, like that problem of the cobbler's kids have no shoes, I was almost always too busy with business to teach my children directly, unless I started a class that included other people's children. Because <laughs> if I had other people's children show up, well, now... I'm accountable to them. I want to look good. I've got to be organized, and um, I got to be nicer to everyone. Um, I've got to, you know, look at the homework and grade it. And so I, I think that, and I sometimes tease tease homeschool parents, you know, in, a, in lectures and things. I'll say, if you want to just instantly become a better teacher, volunteer to teach someone else's children, because you will instantly be more organized, more accountable, and nicer to everyone. So I have tried all the time from the very beginning to do that, to teach at least one class um, that was for my children and their friends in that same basic age group. Uh, and because my thing is writing, I started with teaching a writing class. It was an after-school time slot, and it was my two oldest girls and their half a dozen of their friends. So I had, you know eight, nine, eight to ten-year-old girls, and I had a writing class once a week. And I carved out the time, and I put that on the schedule, and it was it was sacred. I couldn't be too busy to do that because it was the most important thing at that moment. And, you know, I had the flexibility uh, to do that after school. I know some dads who do nighttime classes. Hmm. I know some dads who, uh, you know, they're in the science world, and so they'll schedule biology class for their kids and some other kids in their community or church or uh, network, you know, from seven to nine o'clock on Monday night. Yeah, I just ran into our neighbor, uh, homeschool dad at the grocery store at lunch the other day, and he said, you know, he's he was off to co-op to teach art to to the kids, and I just thought it was so wonderful for the kids at the co-op to have a dad teaching them and not just a bunch of moms. So I'm sure that's a wide open field for dads that. Um, to, to be able to step into some of those classes and maybe maybe they didn't even think about that. Yeah, and 
sometimes they're maybe afraid that they're not they haven't the experience of teaching children but the truth is if they're a dad <laughs> they have experience teaching children yeah. um maybe it's not quite as formal and most dads have areas of interest or learning sometimes those overlap you know this dad loves art so he's going to teach that well i've got a couple dads in our community here who are going to start a um a uh, robotics and programming class this semester mm-hmm. and it's going to be from uh, five o'clock to six thirty on mondays mm-hmm. uh, so it's after work time but the kids are all excited about it and uh you know five of the kids in the group are their children and so uh, i think it's going to be it's going to be great um i i would like to see more dads think about oh what could I teach and do it formally, get into a group and schedule it so that it works. And if you have to, you know, tweak the work hours or do it after hours, it's worth it. And, you know, the kids, they, what, what, what a greater thing than to go to class, you know, with your dad and your friends. Mm. And it's like, you get to show off. Here's my dad. He's teaching us. Isn't this cool? And the other kids are like, wow, your dad's awesome. You know, so it's, I, it's just a win, win, win situation. I will say that um, when I was in high school, my relationship with my dad was not super great. Um, I, I guess that was just maybe trying to be independent and all that did, played into that. But I think that in seeing my dad teach other kids that changed, you know, the way I looked at him a little bit, like seeing how he interacted with other kids. Mm-hmm. And seeing how he interacted with the content or how he taught, I think, made me appreciate things about him that I wouldn't have realized had that not been the case. Now, my dad's, you know, perhaps people might say, well, he's a teacher, but nonetheless, that's kind of irrelevant to the point that I'm kind of trying to make. I yeah, guess. I think it works like that, too, David. Like, if you don't respect your dad, but then you start seeing other people respect him, then that's got to be good. Yeah, so... Um, one question that I, you know, I, I wanted to ask before we run out of time is related to, um, I guess I'll just say frustrated moms and wives. And so, you know, if, if there's, if there's a mom who is frustrated about the role that her husband is playing in the homeschooling, um, whether it's, she really has a desire to, to kind of change the culture of the home. Maybe, maybe it's, you know, we've received questions that say things like, you know, I'm trying to get my kids to love reading, but their dad loves video games. And so they don't care about reading, but they love video games. Um, and if, and for the mom who's frustrated about that and wants to change the culture, but you know, maybe so far the husband hasn't necessarily been responsive to that mm. as a dad, as a husband, and I guess as a man, how would you recommend that, that moms talk to their husbands about those frustrations? And I realize that that's going to vary from relationship to relationship, but um, so so in that sense, I don't know if it's a fair question, but hopefully you have some some reflection on some something to share on that. Well, um, yeah, some cases, I'm sure there's just you know a huge gap between what mom wants and what dad can do, and that's that's going to be there, and so maybe just accepting it um certainly there's been lots of books written about the long-suffering wife and the power of prayer um from a practical point of view your question was what what how can moms talk about it and 
I guess my answer would be indirectly. Um, I've had conversations, you know, at conferences, as you have along these lines, and, and I'll say things like, well, here's a CD of the talk I gave on this or that, or I'll send you uh, a link to this talk, burn it to CD, give it to your husband, let him listen to it in the car. And then he's listening to me talk about the importance of reading out loud to kids and building language patterns and creating a culture of literature and character. And it's not her trying to preach it. I'm speaking the truth, and he's in a safe environment. So I think that there's actually quite a bit of value if moms can say, hey, would you like to listen to this? Could you please listen to this? I really found this interesting. You might like it. And and just, you know, hand it to them and, and, and hope for the best. Um, I th- I've heard some good good stories of wives who've been able to kind of get husbands to to do that and be more interested. And the next thing up in terms of level of commitment, but again, I think this can be life-changing, is get them to come to a conference. Just carve out the time and money that it takes and say, I really would love to go to this conference with you. Could we just, you know, get grandma to babysit and go away for three days and just be together and learn together? You know, if a, if a wife puts it kind of like that, rather than, I think you really need to improve your, you know, parenting, let's go to a conference. But no, I I really want to be with you. I really want to learn with you. Would you do this for me? It's pretty hard, I think, for a husband who loves his wife at all to say, no, I won't even consider that. And I know, I know dads who came to the homeschooling conference for the first time, came to, you know, my talks or other talks, your dad's talks, Steve Demi, people that really speak from experience, especially from the dad man side. And that just transformed them. Just the, the scales were lifted and they could see so much more clearly what, what they should do for the family. So, you know, get thee to a conference. (laughs) And, And unfortunately we're seeing conference attendances down, you know, all over. People aren't feeling like they need that reinforcement the way, say, homeschoolers that were, you know, in the pioneer days or the early days 20 years ago, we go to a conference because this is how we figure out what to do next and get supported and meet like-minded people. Well, you can do all that online now, Yeah. you know, so why go to a conference? You can listen to anything. You can Facebook group. You can talk. But I'll tell you, there's something very powerful about the live experience of hearing the truth in person in a completely focused way together with your spouse. Hmm. That'd be my second advice is coerce him to go to a conference. (laughs) A Cersei conference would be a good option, wouldn't it, David? (laughs) I mean, I I would support that. Um, I've seen, I've seen over the years as I've gone to Cersei, um, uh, it's become more and more popular for, you know, some of the girls to bring their husbands and I, I, the men have been so, it's almost like they are just starved and they're so excited um, to, to start learning this stuff. And it's really fun to, it's fun to see the transformation. And I guess what you're saying, Andrew, is that you, that, that the, the, the husband's imagination has to be captured and it, it's certainly not going to be captured by the wife's, you know, nagging him, um, even though, oh, you know, she shouldn't feel like shut down, like she can't communicate to him, but um, there are ways that make it more appealing for someone to listen. Yes, yes. And along with that, um, 
I think, uh, to paraphrase Plato, I'm not sure if it's an exact quote, but, um, you know, that which is honored is cultivated, or mm. that which is cultivated is honored. And, and that would translate to me, and I think my wife in particular, you know, is very good at this. When I do something that is good, she always goes and says, thank you so much. That was great. I really appreciate how you did that. And it was wonderful to see you spend time with, you know, this kid that way. Or thank you so much for taking time to read to us. She she had that aptitude uh, of of being grateful and acknowledging and encouraging the things she liked that I did. And at the same time, really, you know, she did not nag me about things that I didn't do, except when it built up to maybe a crisis mode. And she said, okay, sit down, we got to talk. But I, I, I look back and I remember her on so many occasions saying, thank you for doing, you know, this particular thing with the family, with the kids, with the class or whatever. So I, I think moms could take that approach. And when dad does do something that is what they like, what they want to cultivate, then honor that, acknowledge that, make that known to the dad. Cindy, how did you, uh, how did you encourage your husband? I tried to nag him as much as possible. (laughs) No, no, uh, my husband always teases me, and I've said this at Cersei before, that he was so glad when we had children so that I could stop teaching him and start teaching somebody else, but... um, (laughs) Um, you know, I, I, I probably could have done a little bit of better, better job. My husband had to work really long hours. And of course, then he came home, he was exhausted and I was exhausted. And, um, you know, so, so I, I think we, uh, over the years, you know, the Lord has led us and helped us and, and brought us through, um, you know, some pretty hard times, I would say. But I, I was, the one thing about my husband that's really, really so redemptive is that my, um, he loves birds and and so he has this love and he hasn't ever taught a class in bird watching or 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 bird identification but but all of our kids know quite a bit about birds just from his conversations and and oh come here let me show you something and of course you know there were times when that was annoying to to certain age groups of kids but now with our granddaughters that live nearby um, they know that, and they call him Happy. We always tease about that. We said, how did he get that name of all the seven dwarfs? But um, the little granddaughters have started calling him Happy, and um, they know that he loves birds, and the minute they walk in the door, they want to, you know, they want to shovel out the bird seed with him. They want to identify the birds. And, and it's just so beautiful to see God giving him um, something that he might have missed uh, the first time around with our actual family. But... Um, but it's still, it's still, you know, redemptive in his life to share what he knows and what he's learned. Yeah, and that makes me think of something else I've I've found to be true and try to encourage young parents. I, I really do believe that how you learn things is more important than the details of what you learn. If you learn from a teacher who loves what they're teaching, if you learn to ask questions about something because you're genuinely getting interested in that, that's forming the cognitive process. And whether it's about, you know, birds or plants or space or ants, you you know, the, the content is not as important in my view 
as the way in which you experience learning that content, which means that if that's true, then you can capitalize on your interests, your passion, mm -hmm. share that, and don't worry about whether your kids are going to learn everything about everything because they're not anyway, no matter what you do. So exactly. relax a little. <laughs> and that is one reason that Charlotte Mason was saying, you know, get your child in touch with, um, you could take a class on biology uh, that was just taught by a terrible teacher who just had to teach biology. Or you could read a book on a narrative book on biology by someone who loved it. And you, you might come away with a much stronger desire to learn more. Uh, from from the book uh, than just by some random class where you have a teacher. Uh, so it's just getting in touch with the mind of someone who loves what they're doing. Well, we are running low on time, so I wanted to ask one last question here before we head out. Um, Mr. Pudwa, is there anything that you wish that you could do over or have done more when it came to being involved in your family's homeschool? Oh boy. Uh, that's not really a fair question. It it, it is an okay question because <laughs> I am, you know, as far from being the perfect dad as anybody could be. And so, yes. Um I'll, I'll f there there's probably a hundred things I could have done differently or better. Um but I'll I'll pick just on two. One of them is I really do think that I worked to escape problems rather than having to work to make enough money. And I know this is true because my wife told me, I think you're, I think you're becoming a workaholic. You are working not for the benefit of the family, but so that you don't have to deal with certain things. And you know, I think that has been true, and I think it's very tempting for us. You know, we view our work as so important and, you know, in my case, life-changing, earth-changing important. But, you know, to do that at the expense of attending to the relationships in the family, especially when they're hard times, they need most the attending to. And I would try harder to not fall into that trap. The second thing is a very technical point, and I know I'm going to step on some toes here, but I saw it very clearly when we moved from California to Oklahoma. We moved out into a very rural agrarian place, but one of the changes was that when we moved into the home in Oklahoma, the internet company automatically installed a wireless modem. And I thought, well, isn't that nice? Now we have wireless and I don't have to mess with trying to figure out how to do it. Whereas in California, we didn't have that. We had a hardwired internet connection in one place in the house. And if I could go back in time, knowing what I know now, looking at my, particularly my two youngest children, whom this affected most greatly, I would go back to that day and say, please take away this wireless modem and put in an ethernet router and I would put three computers on a couple tables in one room and I would hardwire them to the internet and I would make very concrete rules. If you want to use a computer and access the internet, you will do it in this room. You may not move these computers anywhere else. 
and it all shuts down at 10 o'clock at night and just make that the family culture and do that from the very beginning of when I got to Oklahoma and just stick with that idea. And then mom and dad both suffer the same inconvenience. But it would have been so worth it because what I've noticed, especially with teenagers, as soon as you get that wireless thing and they get their own devices, it's so easy for them to become reclusive. Not that they're doing anything morally problematic, but that they're just now all kind of want to be in my own space away. My my screen is my friend. My screen becomes my my primary relationship. And... I think that a lot of parents, you know, who had kids my age were very much blindsided by the moment that the iPod changed from being something that played music to something that hooked you up to the internet wirelessly. It was it was happened almost overnight and if I look back, I think the overall effects were were not positive. In no way did the negatives in no way did the convenience outweigh the negatives and the problem with technology and teenagers or even younger children now is once you give an inch you never get it back yeah i was going to ask you that because it's really uh as a parent i've never found a way to pull back something i've let out of the box um have you <laughs> no it, it i mean it's mutiny it's they scream bloody murder it's it's like you're you know cutting off a limb and and then you think you know is it really worth the fight is this i mean am i going to sacrifice relationship for right, right. my rule even though my rule might be good for them is it worth this is it worth this battle and uh so my advice to young parents today is just don't do wireless in your home put mm-hmm. a couple computers in a in a common area hardwired in but you have to be willing to suffer that yourself as well but that's one thing i would if i could go back six years from now the day we moved in here in oklahoma i wish i had done that and i know i know their lives would be better if i had so there you have it david (laughs) well i suspect that even people who you know can't do that specific thing could still create limits and things like that with internet usage or technology usage that that can help cultivate a better culture you know like if you don't have a desktop and you can't afford to buy one right now or or for whatever reason i'm sure there's things that are similar to that that are in this well there's the whole thing like before you go nobody has anything in their bedroom or before you go to bed you put you put your devices in a basket but like like andrew said you know mom and dad have to put their devices away too Hmm. Hmm. well mr pudua thank you for joining us for this conversation Oh, it's been a lot of fun, and I'll look forward to uh, seeing you all later this year. Yeah, it's going to be fun. If people want to learn more out, learn more about IEW, uh, what should they do? Well, they could go to IEW.com, and right there on the front page, you can watch a little four-minute video of me talking about what IEW does to help promote um, – listening and reading and speaking and writing and thinking skills with our uh, all of our materials and then uh, read more and if you have questions give our office a call it's IEW.com pretty easy just make sure you do it before 10 o'clock and in the common area (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) thank you David well thank you so much thank you so much Andrew it's very nice to have you